You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is a New Year's Day special edition of The Globalist with me, Tom Edwards. Coming up today, we unpack some of the stories in defence and geopolitics that could be set to define the next 12 months. Monocle's US editor Chris Lord is here to talk us through the runners and riders in a year of potentially consequential general election results around the globe. So we're going to start, of course, in the United States. But, Tom, I do not believe it's a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump will be on that ballot paper. I do think we need to be looking elsewhere, to Mexico, to India, and indeed to where we're sat right now, to the UK. More from Chris later. Also ahead, leading risk expert Dr Sally Leavesley gives us the lowdown on what 2024 may hold in store. That's all ahead on this very special edition of The Globalist, live from London. Well, a very happy new year to one and all. Wherever in the world we find you this first day of 2024, joining me now, I'm delighted to say, to ring in the new year, it's Monocle's foreign editor, Lex Self. Hello, Lex. Bon année, Tom. Um, Have you had a pleasant uh, holiday season thus far? It's been wonderful, really, really nice and unseasonably warm and unseasonably cold. One of those applies to the temperature (laughs) and another to my family. Well, no, but this is special. This is the first uh, Christmas with your little snapper, isn't it? Yes, little Agnes. Always a a big one. She she doesn't yet know what the season means, Means. Okay, um, which is obviously rampant consumerism. (laughs) Um, But we did get her her, uh, a Christmas tree decoration that she likes to chew on. It's a mouse on a sled. There we go. Mm. Just something to set the new year in train. <laughs> now listen, on this special edition of The Globalist, we are uh, taking the temperature of some different uh, sectors and themes that are going to inform uh, the, the year ahead. We've got uh, our Chris Lord, who's going to be joining us a little bit later, uh, and other special guests as well. But with you, Lex, I just thought we should mark the card. I think in terms of geopolitics for next year, you know, broad brush, there are some huge elections. I mean, Chris is going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the US uh, general election in November, of course, as well. But across defence, security geopolitics, I don't know, what are you kind of, what what are you marking your card with for the next 12 months? Well, I suppose, you know, with these forecasts, it, maybe it's a bit of a cop-out to say it's it's a very volatile situation worldwide. It's a, it's a fissiparous geopolitical scene at the moment, you know. I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine seemed to kind of hasten the world's division. It seemed into kind of two distinct blocks the democratic West and the autocratic East, which is quite a kind of retro division, actually. Uh, There were times when it seemed as though Russia and China might enter into a kind of military alliance, which, you know, was obviously incredibly ominous, them being two huge nuclear powers. This, thankfully, wasn't quite realised. And if anything, what the, the the result of of those kind of attempts, especially on the part of of Moscow to enter into a closer alliance with Beijing, has just revealed how 
uh, actually, you know, much it dwarfs China now, Russia economically, especially, but but also militarily. So. And, and at the same time, you know, towards the end of this year, the kind of increasingly fractious relationship between China and the US also seemed to ease in November when Xi Jinping met Joe Biden in San Francisco. You know, despite their many differences, uh, you know, an open dialogue is is always preferable between the two greatest military powers in the world to no communication. Of course, as you'll discuss with Chris later, the US election could throw this this potential rapprochement into complete disarray. And, you know, the, the, the thing that I remember most from that visit of Xi Jinping to San Francisco was all the Republicans, you know, posturing on social media, especially posting photos of San Francisco streets lined with Chinese flags saying, parade in Beijing. Oh, wait, no, this is in San Francisco, in California, in the United States. So the fact that someone like Joe Biden, the president of the United States, is willing to kind of roll out the red carpet for the Chinese premier is a good sign. But who knows? Who knows what what, what the next few months will bring and and whether that will continue to to look like a rapprochement or sides will harden ahead of of the election in America. Super interesting dynamics. Let's talk a little bit about the way Monocle, well, you know, your desk, you're running a foreign desk. You People will have read and heard about your uh, some of your own personal reporting trips, Lex, last year. I guess one of the things Monocle remains absolutely steadfast in its commitment to is being out in the world, telling stories by digging a bit deeper. We have a great network of correspondents who are in these markets, so we're not just parachuting in. But of course, our editors gain so much from going out into the world. And it is important, isn't it? As you said, in volatile times, fragmentary world, many different polarised political landscapes, to underscore that commitment to going out there. Again, you must approach the new year with a great deal of excitement about some of those roads you may be walking personally. And, you know, you're overseeing this big reporting machine uh, for, for, for Monocle. But that idea about being present in the world, getting out there, being face to face, that is something which will continue to inform our sort of editorial approach, I guess, in the year ahead. Completely. And, and thank you for mentioning my machine. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose one of the, the kind of raison d'etre of Monocle initially was to kind of cover subjects and locales less covered by uh, Anglophone media. And, you know, part of, of related to the conversation we were just having is the fact that I know I started by talking about this kind of these east-west blocks and, and, you know, very old school look at the world in a way. But actually, I think if the past few years have taught us anything, it's that there are so many players, especially in the global south, that have been kind of neglected for too long by by the West especially. And that was shown with Ukraine and, and, and the kind of failure on the part of Europe and, and North America to get lots of the global south on side. When it comes to us, we don't ignore the global south at all. And in fact, we have a, a strong focus on it. Latin America, I think there's lots of interesting things going on there. Well, obviously, we had the election of, of Javier Millet in, in Argentina in December. It's too early to tell how much of an effect he is going to have there with with the kind of problems they have. But with us, places that we're going to be next year, the the Caucasus is very interesting. We have a big story coming up on the Caucasus. And, and, you know, it's funny, we use this line which was built from Baku to eventually go to Istanbul. And it was supposed to go through all the Caucasian countries. And now 
because of because of the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, because of relations between those countries. This gleaming train line, which was actually part of the China uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and it was supposed to get natural gas from the Caspian Sea quickly into Europe and also serve as a tourist train. You can't go on, you have to get off the train and you have to get a taxi and walk across different borders. And in a way, it kind of hilariously symbolises how fractured that that area is. And these are three tiny countries. This area is, is a really small area, but you know they're very divergent. And there's also big players, Iran, Russia, China, all and Turkey, all, all trying to muscle in on the Caucasus. Anyway, I digress slightly. But <laughs> we're, we're looking at smaller areas often neglected by Anglophone media, and, and we'll continue to do that in the new year. We're, we're outward looking, we're, we're internationalists. We'll be out on the road in a town near you, I'm sure. Coming soon. Watch out for Lex and welcome him. If it, When the roadshow uh, rolls into town, Lex, we will await breaking developments with a great deal of excitement. Uh, can't wait to see where you pitch up next. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, next up on this very special New Year's Day edition of the programme, I'm delighted to say, we're joined from the United States of America by Monocle's US editor, Mr. Chris Lord. Chris, welcome. Tom, great to be with you. Um, Have you had a jolly Christmas? It's been very good to be back in the UK and have a little breather from that relentless (laughs) atmosphere in the United States at the moment. So it's been good. But also now, I think, as we as we start to sort of pack away the tinsel and, and look to the year ahead, it's going to be a very, very busy year indeed. Well, absolutely, Chris. Always the sort of US news media, febrile often, and particularly in a general election cycle. Let, let's start with uh, November, of course. It's in many ways the only game of town. There's always risk at looking at that ter- in those terms. But US general election in November, I'm sure on on everybody's minds, right? That's kind of the only place to start. Absolutely. And we're just two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses, which is going to be the starting gun, really, for determining who is going to take that Republican nomination. Most people think it is a foregone conclusion that will be Donald Trump, and I am not so sure. Well, yeah, well, yeah this is it. It's, it's always difficult, isn't it, to sort of look beyond the people who, who shout loudest. Um, but yeah, what does your experience tell you? Obviously, it's so interesting. You've been in the US for a couple of years now. D- does it give you a different sense, I don't know, a different feel for what might happen as opposed to the narratives that are portrayed in the sort of Anglophone news media? I think it's very easy in this era of characters like Donald Trump to really look away from precedent and think that there is so much happening. This, you know, this is going to break all the moulds. This is, you know, we've only ever had these kind of situations where you have one character who has such a cult-like following uh, amongst his, you know, his base in the United States. But if we look back at previous elections, it's not a foregone conclusion that even though, yes, right now as we're talking, Tom, it continues to be the case that compared to the the rest of the pack in the Republican nomination, nominees and and what have you, the potential people who might lead the party into the election in 2024, that he's going to win. Yes, he may have a significant lead over those others, but actually that has happened before where candidates who have been gone into the primaries with the idea that they are going to be 
certainly they look like they're going to be the strongest uh, party. These primaries and these caucuses, as they unfold in the next weeks and months, Iowa first, New Hampshire next, then to South Carolina, these are, they're not static. They're, they're, they're active and they change and they re- react to each other. So there is a scenario, potentially, where one of those other candidates, let's say, as we speak now, Nikki Haley, who is potentially uh, second uh, over... Um, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Potentially, let's let's carve out a scenario where, say in Iowa, she does better than we think. Then it goes to New Hampshire, and she edges over the line there. Then she goes to her own state, South Carolina, and then she's on the home advantage. And then she does... There is ways that this can happen mm-hmm. by the normal electoral route, putting aside the potential when, which I think is probably going to happen in March, that first case against Donald Trump goes to trial... And then the nation has to watch as this man is not only <laughs> fighting for his name uh, on the ballot paper, but also fighting for his name in court. Uh, fascinating. I mean, there's just so many unpredictable elements. It's risky to try and make you do any predictions. So I'll, I'll leave that one there, Chris. Um, but it's not the only game in town. Obviously, one of the things that underscores Monocle's approach to news and journalism globally is that we want to get out of that mad anglophone echo chamber uh, if possible. Of course, there's maybe a general election in the UK later in the year. Could Mm. be just the start of next. But it's not the only game in town. There's elections in India, Mexico. There's all sorts of places to look that also have huge ramifications uh, depending on where you are in the world. So someone just said to me recently that I think 70% of the world's democracies have an election in the next 12 months. So there is a lot of games in town. And I think the US one uh, is very important because it does spell certain things about funding for Ukraine in the in the war in Ukraine. Also NATO, what that means, what that's going to look like in the years ahead. Just briefly on the UK election, if that does happen within the next 12 months, of course, in many ways, the extraordinary thing is how much synergy there is in, in terms of what the issues are. You know, as in between the two, between the US and the UK, the main concerns are the borders and people coming over them uh, illegally uh, and getting that under control. That's as much a concern in the US as it is in the UK with the southern border. Then there's also the cost of living and pricing and gouging of pricing and these accusations that essentially inflation may be coming down, but people aren't feeling that in their pockets. So there is the, those synergies there. But I, to your point... Let's just not get too distracted by other important elections and maybe more hopeful um, elections. So if we look south from the US to Mexico, it's going to elect one way or the other. It looks very likely to elect its first female leader um, in 2024. That's a country that is poised to have an absolute boom moment. We are in an age of what I call nearshoring potential. We're not actually in nearshoring yet. It's, it's happening slowly, but there is so much potential in the system that it hasn't actually been tapped that. And I think that you've had a leader in Obrador, who AMLO, is, as he gets called, who's ran um, Mexico very domestically focused. And he has brought millions of people out of, or during his tenure, you have seen lots of millions of Mexicans come out of poverty uh, during the time that he's been there. He has run a, a leadership that's all about the domestic, but he's also been incredibly absent on the world stage, mm. boasted about the brevity of his foreign visits. I think he's only made something like six or seven foreign visits in his, t- in his tenure. And that's only within the Americas. He's not come to Europe. He's not gone to any other place where people do care about Mexico right now because they're looking at the emergence of a manufacturing powerhouse with a lot of clout in the Americas. I think it's going to be a very... I think, personally, 2024 is going to be Mexico's 
dollars a year. I think you're going to see that country capitalize on so much of that potential that's there, um, and also create, if you will, if things do go awry, if we like, in the north north of the border in in the U.S., you're going to have another voice there mm. in North America that is going to be fresh. Uh, and probably is going to be quite optimistic and looking to, towards the future. And just briefly, you mentioned the India elections that are going to happen in 2024. Um, what I will say, obviously, Narendra Modi, um, extremely divisive figure in India. And when you, you know, quite often, I think when you're not in India, I spent some time um, sort of in the in the region in in 2023. And when you're not in India, I think you can get the idea that everybody is sort of in broad strokes, at least has some sympathy for towards Modi. Quite often you hear that. I think you just don't hear enough of those oppositional voices these days coming out of India. You talk to a lot of Indians and there's so much concern, even amongst those who regard themselves as religiously very Hindu with a lot of fear about what this man is doing to the country. Mm-hmm. I look just from my perch in the US at these alleged assassination and assassinations that have taken place of Sikh separatists in Canada, in the United States. I think a lot of governments are looking at Modi very much as a partner, but also a very uncertain partner. And you know, Tom, before I you know, moved to the US, I did a long stint for Monocle working in Istanbul, in Turkey. And I remember, you know, those days when the movement of Erdogan from being a, a partner of the West to being a concerned partner to then being a suspicious figure. And I wonder if whether with all those things stacked against Modi as we go into this election, whether we might be seeing this might be the pivotal year where really the world starts to say, who is this man who's running this country? Chris, absolutely fascinating. Great to have your insights. Lovely to have you here in London town to kick off the new year. Uh, looking forward to hearing more of your reporting, of course, from the States, but from all around the world. Great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom. Thanks. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You're listening to a special edition of The Globalist this 1st of January 2024. We continue our special New Year's Day edition with Dr. Sally Leafley, Managing Director of New Risk Limited. Sally advises companies and governments and others on how to mitigate the threats posed by all sorts of challenges, things like terror and more. Um, Sally, great to have you with us, as always, to cast your well-trained eye on uh, the months ahead. And I guess what's interesting if we look at risk profiles globally is to look at maybe new risks for the the new year. It's always such a fascinating and quickly changing landscape. Where where do you think it's expedient to start? Is it with new risks? Do we look at things, is it technology, things that are moving at such a pace that they throw up new challenges? Is that a good place to start? It's not only the challenges from technology that we're going to see in this year, but it's also human challenges. And the biggest challenge is human resilience, and particularly in cities, 
because of the emerging threats, 2024 now is quite different to our past experience. So we have to be well informed and understand how particularly certain effects may influence our daily lives. Um, and tell me about geographies in terms of those threats. I guess we look at this through the prism of Western democratic experience, uh, the UK, US and others. There are so many different profiles of risk when it comes to things like the resilience of cities, the robustness of infrastructure. Um, but I guess maybe it's instructive to start from that Western liberal democratic perspective in terms of if we're talking in generalities about preparedness or otherwise, correct? Well, it's interesting in the political scene because the politics of some of the Western nations, the United Kingdom, the United States, also countries like Taiwan, the politics there may galvanise certain threats or bring certain threats closer than we've anticipated. And particularly in what I would call our new experience of hybrid warfare, And in the political scene, both in the UK and the US, there's going to be some commonality. And that will be shown both in in cyber effects and also in terrorism that may congress around the actual political scene. Now, in practical terms, from the population's point of view, the risks are going to be that Hybrid warfare, as as expressed through cyber activity, and that is through all forms of internet connectedness and the way in which people are now able to be approached in small groups, through influencers, uh, even through mainstream broadcasters, the influence operations of hostile nations to Western democracy are going to be virtually on steroids and experienced by us as the population this year in a totally different way. And the the differences are going to be uh, the Russians are going to have to find a new way around their influence operations because in the last American election, the FBI really got onto their activities. Individuals were arrested and the ways in which they were using influence, they were using social media was picked up. But the agility in the social media for particularly asymmetric, small planted groups to create influence operations. And remember that hostile nations plan uh, our elections in reverse with in terms of what they are wanting to influence. And they don't have to target whole nations. It'll be specific areas of the population and specific locations that are critical to election outcomes that will suit hostile nations' interests. So it may mean in in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, the the Russian attempts may be to expose certain politicians to shame by breaching their intimate information in their social communications. In America, it may be to create massive crowd demonstrations and to use groups and to polarise far more than they did in the last American election, to polarise but to create uh, much more aggression. Mm. Because uh, for the Russians, social unrest is like a political currency. But what we will see both from Chinese and Russian influences, is a much greater risk to critical infrastructure. Now, funnily enough, this links in with demonstrations and mass protests because it shows the population that the governments are not in control 
and it weakens government's connectivity with the public. The Russians are crash and burn. The Chinese are subtle. I always love talking to you, Sally, but I do often find it absolutely terrifying <laughs> in equal measure, but it's it's great to get your insights. Let's move on a little bit. I want to talk about the profile of n- some natural risk uh, if we look at, at 2024. And obviously, we've seen so many direct threats related to climate change, the climate crises, whether that's heat. If we talk about the resilience of cities in particular, which we'll talk about a bit more in a second, so much dependent or contingent on the prevailing uh, conditions. Um, how would you kind of sum up the the nature, I guess, the shifting profile of that climatic risk as we look into the rest of the year? The climatic risk to people, along with other ongoing natural disaster risks, is, is quite Im- important for individuals in populations, for you and I as ordinary people to think about. A lot of it comes down to water. If we understand what's happening to water... We're understanding the heat exchange between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere and how heating and also the de-icing of the poles, how that is changing the volumes of water. And it means volumes of water in the air that have massive storms that um, houses and drainage are not built for, which means cities are experiencing flooding. We're also seeing changes in the weather patterns so that, say, in countries in Africa, perhaps that I've been to, my interest has been very much looking at the changes in crops and how fragile economies that that depend uh, perhaps on on coffee and and other types of uh, crops, those fragile economies are going to have to rapidly change and they don't have the infrastructure to do that change. The other issue with water, which makes me very cynical about the world's approach to climate change, is that there are many international meetings, as we've just seen in 23 with COP28, but I am not seeing in all countries protection of populations and particularly cities that are built on the edges of water. Mm. Let's even look at New York. Let's look at, at London that's got a Thames barrier, which is going to be increasingly less useful in holding back large tides and storm surges. So big, important cities, as well as poorer people and poorer populations in many countries, have not started to be protected. Why has that not been done for 20 years? My view is climate has been a political game, not a people's game. And there's clearly been a complacency. Also, I guess that water pressure or broader climate pressure drives uh, different migratory pressures in terms of the large scale movements of populations for economic or, as you said, for existential reasons. And that will feed into the some of these political narratives in other markets, especially where there are elections that we were talking about in the first instance. It's an exploitable political commodity, right, for, for bad actors to use climate-induced migration as a political tool to manipulate even individual behaviours when it comes to the ballot box or people's behaviours? Yes, I I totally agree with you. And migration can be a weapon. We've seen it in 2023 where Finland has had to close its borders Mm. because there's been a push of migrants by Russia across there because of to try and weaken Finland and protect Russia's interests, particularly nuclear interests in the Arctic. But along with population migration, we are not seeing countries working out their cooperative border relationships. And they should be doing this in anticipation 
of much greater increase this year in population movements. The other population migration that has to be sorted out, and I'm not yet seeing enough attention paid to it, is low-lying islands. Uh, where whole nations, particularly in the Pacific, and it's in the Pacific I think we're going to see a lot of the geopolitical pressures mounting on nations that are massively threatened with small populations in islands that are strategically important for maritime warfare. Those populations are now being, uh, being given great friendship, massive economic debts, and they're being exploited And in the end, their vulnerability is going to be to the rising oceans. And it's a terrible future. And strategically, I'm not seeing countries looking after those nations. Um, Sally, we've mentioned a couple of specific examples of cities and we talk in broad brush terms about the threats to cities in, in the year ahead for different reasons, whether that is rising tides, um, some of these geopolitical pressures, uh, the risks of, of fire and brimstone stuff. We're very focused on the great cities of the world here at Monaco. What are some of the solutions that can deliver better resilience in cities, in broad brush terms, or perhaps you can make some specific examples. Well, you've already used the proactive word, and that's resilience and hardening of cities. And that means resilience of population, as well as resilience of of infrastructure. And we have to look beyond the normal. In the cyber field, a lot of resilience has been put into cloud, into the way the, the internet can be run much more successfully for companies through using service through cloud, and it gives them a much greater resilience. But I think we need Cloud Plus. And Cloud Plus is not only having much more nimble and agile movements into cloud um, services, but it's also to look at hardened, hardwired, and even underground infrastructure. Populations can't survive without water and without energy. So what we're seeing in countries like China, which are obviously in a period where they are considering conflict, we're seeing underground, hardened protection of critical facilities as part of their project. Switzerland, of course, is massively good with already decades (laughs) past having realised hardened infrastructure. So the countries that have underground hardened infrastructure are going to survive a lot better. If we look at cities like Tokyo, for example, those cities have already got buildings well constructed, but the earthquake threat on the southwestern side below Tokyo is a very significant triple fault, very similar to the west coast of the United States. So cities along those margins have to look at earthquake plus tsunamis. And unfortunately, they also have to look at now the emerging threats of weapons, which can create tsunamis in those particular target areas. Oh, so many attendant challenges, Sally. Um, just very briefly, obviously your job is to discuss and illuminate people about all of these threats, many of which are existential in character. Are you optimistic about two things, both our capacity collectively to move the needle on some of these areas, but also about the will, the collective will? We've said sometimes it's lacking. There's sometimes cop-outs at things like COP. But do, but do you have a, a, a streak of underlying optimism that we can at least move in the right direction in the year ahead. Yes, interestingly enough, part of my optimism is the broadcast media. That may sound unusual, but the broadcast media can help with with redefining narratives that are meant to disturb populations. 
And having correct narratives that are trusted means long-term trusted broadcast media will have, well, in this year and onwards, are going to have an increasingly important role. There will be great assistance from artificial intelligence. Uh, There's been a lot of doomsaying about artificial intelligence, but in many areas, in in countering terrorism, in recognising patterns across the world, in countering narratives, in health, artificial intelligence is, is likely to be one factor that is going to make people's lives a lot better this year and onwards. It's going to reduce some of the threats. It's going to hasten warning capabilities. Artificial intelligence, and particularly through health, is probably going to be the, one of the biggest life-saving achievements that we will have in this year. Dr Sally Livesey, it's always terrific to speak to you. Thanks so much for illuminating us about some of the big trends to watch in 24. We look forward already to bringing you back for further analysis as the year ticks by. Great to see you. Thanks very much for coming in. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Isabella Jewell and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. Plenty of great music on the way. A very special edition of The Briefing coming up at 1300 CET. That's midday here in London. The show, The Globalist, returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. And do keep it tuned to Monocle Radio throughout 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs>